Hello, and welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my co-host, Daniel Larison, and I have to say a lot has happened in the world since we were last sitting here a week ago. As of this recording, Israel has been mobilizing tens of thousands of soldiers, mostly reservists, on the Gaza border following last weekend's attacks by Hamas. The militant organization, which has been the de facto government of Gaza since 2006, is responsible for over 1,200 Israelis and some 22 Americans uh, killed since last weekend, many of them civilians. The brutal, well-coordinated attack took Israel by surprise and has been met with overwhelming force by Tel Aviv. Gaza is slowly tur- turning the strip, which is only 140 square miles, into rubble. As of Thursday, more than 340,000 of Gaza's 2 million people were displaced and an estimated 1,300 killed, including civilians, by Israeli airstrikes. Politically, this leaves the vaunted Abraham Accords on life support. As we have warned on this show before, the normalization agreements ignored the plight of the Palestinians and the stalled peace process And U.S.-Israel Arab leaders miscalculated and underestimated the backlash of the Arab street. Meanwhile, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu underestimated Hamas as he made a policy of keeping a hard split between Palestinians and Gaza and and the West Bank and continued to build settlements in the latter while hardening the walls around the former. It was a powder keg and his intelligence apparatus failed spectacularly to see this wave of attacks coming. While no one is, um, no, no one should count his political resilience out, the days of his leadership in Israel may be numbered as more and more commentators in and outside of Israel are laying what is being called Israel's 9-11 directly at his feet. So, Dan, what is uh, your biggest fear this week as you see events in Israel and Gaza unfold? Oh, yeah, thanks, Kelly. Uh, so, uh, my yeah, my my main concern now is, uh, of course, the, the the destruction that will ensue uh, as a result of escalation. Uh, we've seen the Israeli government talking about shutting up. Well, they already have shut off uh, access to food, water, electricity uh, to Gaza. And of course, we should remember that Gaza was already under severe restrictions and was uh, essentially uh, a, a giant prison uh, prior to this. And now it's going, the siege that was already happening uh, will now be tightened and made even more punishing. And so we're seeing a, a deliberate campaign of, of collective punishment against the civilian population, which is going to have terrible, uh, a terrible toll on those uh, people in the Gaza Strip. Uh, and and I, I'm afraid we're going to be looking at very high casualties, uh, especially uh, when and if the Israeli government goes in with a, a ground invasion. And so the the sheer uh, loss of human life and the, and the the huge number of war crimes that we can expect to see happening in the coming weeks and months, uh, of course, are are very uh, concerning and and should be opposed and condemned uh, just as loudly as the atrocities that were carried out against Israeli civilians. Uh, but unfortunately, we know that's not going to happen. Uh, the U.S. is giving its full-throated support uh, to whatever the Israeli government wants to do. And so I, I'm afraid that that's, that's going to encourage this government, which is one of the worst governments they've ever had, uh, in its worst instincts. Uh, and we're also going to see, I think, an escalation of violence against Palestinians in the West Bank, an escalation of annexationist moves 
uh, by this government uh, in the West Bank, uh, which of course were some of the things that led to the conditions that that triggered uh, the attacks themselves. Uh, the other thing that I'm very concerned about is this growing drumbeat for attacking Iran. Uh, what you know, even when there is no evidence of direct Iranian involvement in these attacks, and and the U.S. government and the Israeli government have both said that that involvement has not been proven, that they see, have seen no evidence of it. And in fact, the New York Times reported this week uh, that, according to U.S. intelligence at least, some key Iranian leaders were surprised by the attacks. They weren't expecting them. They, they obviously weren't in on it, at least some of them. It's, it's conceivable that some parts of the government were in the loop and some weren't. But uh, it, it certainly sounds like the Iranian government wasn't orchestrating it. Uh, that, that much seems clear based on what we've seen so far. And so this idea that we're going to turn around and start start a war with Iran on top of what's going on already with Gaza uh, is is insane. Uh, but and of course you've seen the people that are calling for it are the, you know, the usual suspects: United Against Nuclear Iran, uh, Joe Lieberman's group, uh, Lindsey Graham in the Senate. Uh, you know people who have been desirous of war with Iran for the last twenty years, uh, maybe thinking they finally got their chance to to sell it. And I'm I'm very concerned that that they might actually get their way this time, because the the mood, of course, in Israel and the mood here, uh, has gone back very much to the, the sort of insane revenge focused uh, madness that we saw 20 years ago, uh, where where all dissent gets put to the side and the focus is purely on punitive measures and violence uh, to the detriment of everyone, and so it's uh, it's very. Uh, worrisome, uh, and as an aside on the Iran issue or on the Iran angle, uh, I just saw today uh, the news just came through. I think a little while ago that the Biden administration is also reneging on part of the deal that they made with Iran over the prisoner exchange, where the Iranians aren't going to be given access to the money, their money uh, that they were supposed to be able to access for humanitarian purposes. Uh, which is, I mean, it's it's ridiculous on many levels, uh, not least of which is that the money was strictly controlled to be used only for humanitarian purposes. And so now we're punishing Iranian civilians for something that Hamas did. And it's 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 beyond uh, ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, I mean, all the political vultures are out and they're grabbing their piece, their hunk of uh, bloody meat is how I see it. And I, it's no more evident than in this, this trope that the Biden administration literally gave Iran $6 billion and Iran turned around and handed it to Hamas. I literally have been hearing that on Fox news. So it is like the, it is this ghoulish tell like a telephone game where it goes from actual reality, which is funds that are like still sitting in Doha and that are only to be doled out by Qatar to Iranian humanitarian efforts. That is the plan. No money has actually been left Doha yet. But yet fast forward, you know, six days after the attacks and that money has literally flown to Hamas in Gaza and had been used in the attacks. And um, you know what? They're getting their way because I agree. I saw the same reports you did, Dan, on Thursday that uh, the administration is 
considering refreezing, quote unquote, uh, the funding. So that's just basically taking uh, food and med medicines out of the mouths of just normal, regular Iranians and has nothing to do with the IRGC or Hamas or the regime. So I, you know, I, I'm feeling these days the same as I did after the Russian invasion. All um, nuance, all calls for restraint, uh, to look at the situation through the, the prism of principled restraint. And I, I have no other way of putting it uh, other than I don't like bloodlust <laughs> has been cast aside. And if you are not with us, you are against us. If you are not with the, the, the basic, uh, basically the, 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 the most severest reprisals possible on Gaza, then somehow you are pro-terrorist. And this is the, the mantra that's come up and it's, it's seeped into the mainstream, into mainstream media, uh, the MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, they're all pretty much in lockstep. And it's, it's, really, it's really difficult. So a, a lot of the folks on the right who have been calling for oversight of Ukraine aid and looking out for U.S. interests and not, and not seeking a broader conflict in, in, in Eastern Europe by antagonizing the Russians are now pointing fingers at people like me saying, if I'm not sufficiently behind uh, the U.S. getting involved in uh, this war in Gaza, that somehow I don't care about Israeli uh, civilians, I, I, I'm pro-terrorist, um, I'm pro-Hamas. And so, you know, we're right back where we started. We're just on the other side of the dial now. And it's unfortunate uh, that most people in this town are not very principled when they say they're not interventionists or they're pro-restraint or they're realists or whatever have you. Um, they go with the political wind. And uh, we're seeing that in action right now, unfortunately. Yeah. And well, one thing to, to add about that, a lot of people have, have made it's almost become a cliche already at this point, saying that the attacks were like Israel's 9-11. In some ways, being proportionate to their their population, it was probably worse than 9/11 in terms of the the, the shock of it and and the the lives lost. Uh, and and the, the these were of course uh, horrible atrocities. Um, but but uh, the the thing that I think we should take away from that comparison is that we have the benefit of understanding how we went wrong after 9/11. Right. In in responding with this. Uh, massive overreaction, militarized overreaction, where we pursue this global war on terror for 20 years. And the, the problem of terrorism is far worse in the world and has spread to more corners of the world than it ever had been in prior to that. The war on terror has been a colossal failure and has caused the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. So the, the lesson to, be, to drawn, be drawn from that is if you suffer an attack comparable to that, uh, to that earlier attack, the the response should not be an insane militarized pursuit of vengeance because that is going to end up making things so much worse uh, for for everyone uh, including for you and and the idea that Israel could somehow buy security through even more oppression and brutality than what they've already been doing is uh, morally and strategically bankrupt and and they I think on some level people must know that but Everything is being driven by emotion and, and by the, the, the rage to strike back. And 
while that's you know it's understandable on one level, it's also uh, doomed to failure. Our guest today is Michael Brennis. He's Associate Director of the Brady Johnson Program in Grand Strategy and Lecturer in History at Yale University. He's the author of For Might and Right, Cold War Defense Spending and the Remaking of American Democracy. He is writing a history of the war on terror from the presidency of Bill Clinton to the present. In addition to that, he's writing a book with Van Jackson titled The Rivalry Peril, How Great Power Competition Threatens Peace and Weakens Democracy. He's also the author of an article that came out in Foreign Affairs over the summer called How America Broke Its War Machine. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, absolutely. It's our pleasure. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to you about the article. I was, uh, it was interesting to me. It, it, it comes at the, the issue of the, the defense industry in a, in a slightly different, from a slightly different angle than what I'm used to. Uh, but, it, but it was a very good article. Um, and it digs into why the U.S. defense industry is falling short when it comes to production, especially production of, of basic ammunition and sort of the, the, the material that is needed to supply a, a major conflict. Uh, so, so how did the war machine break, as the title put it, and who broke it? Um, well, it's a long story, and I'll try to be short. Um, so uh, I should back up and say when the war in Ukraine first happened, so February of 2022, right, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, um, there were comments coming out from the U.S. kind of you know, pundit, pundits and other experts or so-called experts on foreign policy saying that the United States is now an arsenal of democracy. We can be an arsenal of democracy again, uh, alluding to the period of World War II and, you know, basically from 41 to 45, um, uh, when the United States was supplying Europe, uh, the weapons was needed needed and required to, to fight the um, fascist threat. But that, to me, as a historian, just obviously just didn't ring true. Uh, you, you can't capture, recapture that period. Uh, and uh, all the comments that were coming out of, again, of major publications at that time that, that said this, and Biden himself, who said the United States were implied, he didn't use the phrase arsenal democracy, but he implied that the United States is an arsenal democracy. Those, those ideas, to me, just, just rang hollow, given what I know about history. Uh, and the reason why is because World War II, and this was the point of one of the points I raised in the article, where two, the government is controlling the operations and functions of the defense industry. It mandates, in many ways, overseas uh, through how it, it distributes a con its contracts, how uh, material is made. Uh, it oversees the industry in ways that it that it doesn't anymore, uh, and that's mostly due, but not. Uh, exclusively due to the period after the end of the Cold War, uh, where you get, uh, anyway before this too, the privatization of the industry and the consolidation of the industry in the hands of a few major defense contractors. And the government allowed this to happen. They encouraged it, you know, the, the, the so-called Last Supper uh, during the Clinton administration, where uh, basically, the Clinton officials were saying you need to consolidate or, or die. Uh, and so that's what the defense industry did. They listened to the government and the government incentivized this. And now you have consolidations uh, to the point where you don't have, uh, I would argue, the subcontractors needed to supply 
the United States and therefore Ukraine with weapons it needs. And so most of the big, not all of the big defense contractors were chasing big ticket items like the F-35, you know, B-21 bomber, these, these things that create large contracts for long periods of time that invariably lead to cost overruns, which lead to more profits uh, uh, for the industry. And so ammunition, uh, small arms, uh, those things aren't as profitable and they haven't been pursued. And the government hasn't, uh, going back to my point about the also democracy, the government hasn't incentivized their production. And this is, you see this during World War, uh, sorry, during the war on terror, where the United States military is also facing ammunition shortages. Um, and you see it now. But again, I would say it's just been heightened because of the ways in which the United States is supplying aid to Ukraine, um, that the problem is heightened and, and it's become more visible. And uh, you you summarize the, the problem as, as a history of consolidation, privatization, outsourcing, job cuts, federal inaction, and a hunt for larger profits. And you say that has created a perfect storm that's crippled the defense industry's ability to produce uh, these weapons and ammunition in sufficient quantities. Um, at the same time, we have record-setting military budgets in real terms. So the public is still getting gouged, but but it's not really getting value for the for the money that's being spent. Um, what do you recommend as some remedies to begin addressing the weaknesses in the defense industrial base? I I pointed to a couple in my piece, and I think first and foremost, we need. Um, comprehensive comprehensive defense reform so defense acquisitions reform um is key to uh i would say any type of of reining in of the military and more, more importantly serving as you as you said forcing the military to serve the national security interests of the united states and therefore the american people in ways that it has not um uh, in at least in many ways during my lifetime uh and so that would mean bipartisan defense acquisition reform, uh, which has been spearheaded by people like Elizabeth Warren uh, and Chuck Grassley, trying to go after monopolization uh, and consolidation uh, in the industry. You have, uh, I think, also the need for the government to get more involved in trying to actively um, go after defense companies who don't deliver on the promises as, as opposed to, and I think this is more the Congress and Congress has to take more action here. Again, the president and the executive branch has um, less pull here, but trying to go after companies that have been awarded contracts that create huge cost overruns. And then that leads invariably to not enough money being, or not enough uh, opportunity for subcontractors to, uh, produce weapons and produce uh, the material that's needed. And I think finally, what I would say also is that there needs to be um, overall uh, a kind of um, government-directed effort to produce things that are needed, as opposed to awarding contracts to things that we don't need. I would argue like more F-35s or B-21 bombers. The government has to take initiative and say, well, no, we're not going to do this anymore. We have to rethink our defense priorities and our national security priorities. Uh, and if this is the type of conflict we're going to be in, in the present and the future, then we need to shut down these programs that aren't going to be helping us in any significant way, I would argue, as, late, as it relates to Ukraine and, um, you know, and other conflicts that the United States finds itself 
being involved in our supplying weapons uh, to insurgencies and and um, other governments. Thanks for coming on the show, Mike. It's great to see you again. Uh, I loved your piece uh, in Foreign Affairs. I love uh, the grand sweep of the hist- uh, the history of uh, industrial defense policies in in the United States and how it went from the World War II production line all the way to this massive consolidation and privatization of today. Are you advocating that we go back to the former, that the the government takes back control over defense production um, root and branch? And it, it, and and if so, like, what does that look like, you know, to, uh, you know, listeners who are just not well versed in, 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 in this whole world? I think I think there is something something to be said about sort of nationalization or if not wholesale nationalization, but part part nationalization of the industry. You know, if, if we are talking about an industry that is supposed to serve national security interests of the United States and therefore the, the interests of the American people uh, to have an industry that's detached from democratic oversight, which I would argue the Pentagon largely has been detached from democratic oversight in historical terms, but contemporary terms, then that's not good. It's not good. <laughs> it's not good for a democracy. And it's not good, more importantly, well, not as importantly, but just as importantly, it's not as good for, for directing. It's not very good for directing the, the uh grand strategy of the United States, the future planning of the United States as it relates to its foreign policy interests. And so uh, I do think that there is a, in my view, uh, uh, an outdated sort of set of policies that should become more popular. And they they go back to the 60s. John Kenneth Galbraith was arguing in, in the late 1960s in the wake of the Vietnam War for the nationalization of the industry, uh, seeing that the military industrial complex uh, had in profited off from the profited from the Vietnam War, and that it was also producing weapons that were in planes like the C5A that actually weren't delivering on their promises. And so, if you have this industry that's detached from democratic oversight, that is allowed to function with uh, near impunity. Then I don't think you can you can let that stand as as a as a as a as a, um, as a democratic nation and as individuals living in a democracy. I don't think you can allow that to stand. So uh, this this does not mean this is going to happen overnight. But I, again, I think this the state of de- defense reform is is quite dire. You know, there there are people, con- congressional officials who are focused on or interested in it. But I think that's the first step is defense acquisition reform that breaks up the monopolies, that creates more leverage over the industry. And then you can start to think about reining in some of of the most nefarious uh, uh, attributes and decisions that that the defense industry has has made uh, and and represents uh, over the past 30, 40, if not more years. I could see so many um, challenges in, in in making this transformation happen. One is like you have like well the, the biggest one that comes to mind is that you these companies have gotten to where they are today the the top five defense contractors in part because they have so many lobbyists 
many of them who are former government, former legislators, former military. As you know, there's this uh, spinning, revolving door. They are fully entrenched here in Washington. I, I, it'd be hard to see or how you know they would cede any of that power um, very easily. And so to break up this consolidation, these monopolies would be difficult because mm-hmm. I would imagine that just even the, the legal obstacles to that uh, would be enormous. But also the, the brain drain from the government I mean, all of the most innovative, uh, technologically, scientifically, uh, in aerospace and, and other sectors are, these people are in the private sector and you'd have to start hiring them back and then offering them tons of money to, to come back. And, and I was so, uh, you know, we're talking decades of a, a brain drain, decades of a, the, a loss of know-how in terms of how to do it, and relying so much on the private sector for everything. And as you remember, Mike, I'm sure during the Iraq War, you know, we outsourced so much to the point where we were completely dependent on contractors for even the littlest things, like feeding our troops and and building their barracks. We we couldn't do it anymore. We just didn't have all that in-house. So I, I would have, I, I, I sympathize with your argument. I just, wow. Even when we tried to, to, to bring some of healthcare back under the, the, um, the, the, the umbrella of government back under the Obama days, the, the, the private sector, the lobbyists, I mean, were so in, in force and influential that they ended up gumming that up too. So, um, but Hey, I, I, I think, you're absolutely correct to bring all of these things about because, you know, we're looking at a situation where we have another war breaking out in the Middle East and we want to give our friends in Israel weapons and particularly ammunition. And it's like we're being told that we just don't have it in the store, the storehouse. No, I think that's this is right. And I and uh, I I agree that what I might be saying sounds utopian. I, you know, I, but got to start as, somewhere. You have to. That's that's what I'm saying. You can say uh, it's utopian, and then we can get despondent and then just become miserable, and the situations are going to change, kind of thing. But uh, and I certainly don't think you know <laughs> that congressional officials will be down with sort of a long, again, overarching, sweeping nationalization program. But I do think there should be ways in which you can rein in the industry and then you can rein in the industry on these these particular terms that I'm talking about. And then we can start to think about other things. Like when the Overton window is open from some policy change, then that leads to more arguably, hopefully, some further changes or more changes that can be done. And so it's a 20, 30 year, 40, 50 year long vision, but we have to start somewhere. And then my that, this was kind of the foreign affairs piece was a way to start somewhere. Um, and I think you, to your point about the current conflict, yes, I mean, that's, uh, that's um, how much can we do, right, with limited resources at this point. And I don't think that the United States is in a great position um, politically um, if we're going to be trying to both support Ukraine and Israel. And you see that coming from Republicans now who are using the Ukraine war to say, well, we can't, we can't fund this Ukraine war. Now we have to fund Israel. And it's either, either or uh, it's a zero sum game. Uh, and that's 
that's deadly or, or you know costly at least uh if not deadly to people who are suffering from these conflicts and i think that's just not it's not good um to be in this position economically but uh, or in terms of our political economy uh, as it relates to defense but i think again that starts with some reform and we're not seeing it yet but hopefully <laughs> maybe possibly uh in my lifetime we'll get somewhere right and, and one of the the other complicating factors is we were having uh the, the, this push to to ramp up uh, at least in terms of policy ramp up this idea of, of great power rivalry and and we're pursuing rivalry with china at the same time uh when we don't really have if we're, if we're running into problems having the means to supply these current wars, uh, we will certainly have the same problem if we ever run into a, a conflict with China. Uh, but what we see uh, that doesn't seem to be slowing anyone down or making anyone rethink this rivalry framing that everyone, or that, that most everyone in Washington seems to want to buy into. Uh, and you're, you're writing a book with Van Jackson uh, called The Rivalry Peril, uh, talking about some of the, the, the pitfalls of this. Um, how, how does your... Uh, view of great power competition fit into all of this uh, do, do you think that's going to be a spur to to cause the kinds of reforms you're talking about or is it just going to end up exhausting us um yeah i should say first the book with van is done so we're the manuscript is done it's okay. at, the, at the publisher so hopefully hopefully <laughs> be coming out next year uh if not you know soon soon it'll be coming out soon um right. and yeah so what we argue in the book um or what i my my position our position um in in our book is is that the united states is trying to through great power competition recapture elements of if not the cold war elements of the cold war they're trying to they you know foreign policymakers when they reflect on great power competition they look to the Cold War as an analogy. They look to it as an example. And so what happened during the Cold War? Well, the United States could pursue a great power conflict, but yet we can also uh, get involved in proxy conflicts. Um, we could also supply uh, democratic countries or at least non-communist countries. Um, they didn't have to be democratic with weapons and material. And I think the United States is in an age of great power competition is if that's our analogy, if the cold war framework is going to animate uh, foreign policymakers thinking, I think that's the direction we're going is that we're going to have a foreign policy that's everywhere all at once, you know, that sees China as the clear uh, primary existential threat to American interests and national security below that Russia. And then we're going to try to stamp out conflicts around the world that foment, uh, strife and and foment unrest and could potentially if we're thinking about this in terms of china being the the legitimate peer rival to the united states that could potentially uh ally with china you know that you know this the cold war framework isn't applicable of course we argue in the book and for many reasons um and it's not applicable just because for, for in ideological terms, this is not an ideological great power conflict as it was during the Cold War. But in many ways, that's kind of, in some ways, irrelevant you know, because we can kind of still keep uh, the pressure, uh, I think American officials believe we can still keep pressure on uh, countries that don't serve our interests, no matter what where they exist around the world. And that, to me, is 
it's American primacy. <laughs> That's what it is. Um, it's it's efforts by the United States to maintain its hegemony in the world. And I don't think that is was a good strategy in the Cold War. And I don't think it's a good strategy now. And it's going to prove costly and it's going to prove deadly. Uh, and what Ben and I argue uh, to wrap up uh, this point is, is what Ben and I argue is that invariably this becomes a zero-sum game. We either spend on the military or we don't, right? It shouldn't be like, well, we just have you know, the military or defense spending or, or, or social welfare, but that that's what it comes down to um, in political terms. And I think that's what we're going to see is that the United States um, is not going to be uh, relieved from its problems by great power conflict. In fact, Democrat, democratic uh, uh, backsliding poverty, uh, climate change is actually going to get worse uh, if we're trying to be involved in Israel and Ukraine and China and South Asia uh, related Indian affairs, it's just not going to be good for the United States and its people um, for the foreseeable future. Uh, yeah, and I, I think that's right. And uh, I, I look forward to reading the book. Uh, once again, it's going to be uh, The Rivalry Peril, How Great Power Competition Threatens Peace and Weakens Democracy. Uh, uh, you wrote with Van Jackson. Uh, Michael Brennis, thanks again for being here. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Kelly. It's always a pleasure. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack, at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.